This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Neil Dirks, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NPPC's Neil Dirks next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world. But billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies distort the global market and put U.S. producers at a disadvantage, weakening America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would hurt family farms, jeopardize good-paying jobs, and weaken the supply chain that puts sugar on consumers' tables. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. After 40 years of service to the agriculture industry, including the last 20 years as CEO of the National Pork Producers Council, Neil Dirks is stepping down to retire. Dirks reflects on 20 years of change for the industry and for the nation's hog farmers. He says despite challenges from disease, regulation, and trade, some segments of the U.S. swine industry are growing. We are actually less consolidated today in the U.S. packing industry for the pork industry than we were five years ago, and that's because we've had producers invest in building packing plants. And so the concentration there is not as strong as it had been. As it relates to fewer producers, that's a trend that's existed in American agriculture for the last 100 years. Uh, Part of it is people saw opportunities away from the farm. And with that, thankfully, technology and science was available to allow us to produce food for everybody with fewer resources, uh, particularly labor, even though labor is a major issue in our industry, not just on farms, but also in our packing industry. Now, actually, in the last ag census, um, number of pork operations in the United States actually increased. number of people raising hogs actually increased from where it had been 10 years earlier, which was a change in the trend that had been occurring since World War II. So, and that's part of the challenge. There aren't a lot of, you know, when we talk about constituents, when we do government relations work, You can have a medium-sized city in the Midwest has more people in it than there are pork producers in the entire United States. But the value of what those producers do is extremely critical to our country and to our economy. And so that's one of the challenges. We have to be able to make our case and do the things that that allow people to do their jobs. I think our consumers uh, take it as a given that there's going to be pork in the meat case or available for purchase, but it seems that that consumer now wants to have a greater influence in how it's produced and even the environmental impact of the production of the product. Is that an opportunity or is that a challenge for this industry moving forward? Well, I think that it's both, Jeff, but let's take a look at the pandemic where suddenly because of constrictions and people decided they were going to stay at home. And in fact, it was a real positive for the meat industry. People stayed home and, and the amount of product moving through uh, the system, our retail really boomed as far as the amount of availability. Now, at the same time, some of the just-in-time nature of our systems 
showed up and were challenged. And you, as you're aware, just like people running out of toilet paper on those shelves, we had places where where there was no meat in the in meat cases. In a kind of macabre way, um, I think American consumers got a perspective that hey, this just doesn't. You know, I'm used to going to the grocery store and it's always fully stocked. Suddenly realized there was a lot behind what it takes to get product to the to the grocery store so the consumers can buy it, take it home, and enjoy it with their family. Um, and I'm not saying from any significant, oh, people just suddenly realized that, that the, far, the farmer's important. I think they knew that, and I think that you take a look at surveys, um, that's played back time and time again about the importance of farmers. But they got a, a dose of, geez, I'm so used to, this abundance and suddenly it's like gee you know it might not be available now to your point about um when you say consumers are demanding things uh we've always been open for choice we we fully believe in choice and we believe if um if there is a given product demanded that the market will will take that into account and will supply that um now, sometimes people get confused with saying the consumer when in reality it's some activist groups that do things that aren't based in either in science or in demand for given products. And what happens with that is that um, there are constraints put on the market and the motivation for those activist groups is not better products more abundant products, it's actually reducing meat price, uh, meat availability. A classic example is what you know animal rights activists that claim to be supporting the animals, in reality, their real goal is to reduce meat consumption. I think you'll see, and I think our industry's proven that, that welfare is a critical issue. And I would argue that producers are as concerned about the welfare of their animals as anyone is. That doesn't, you know, necessarily always jive with some group that's got a motivation for doing something that pulls on heartstrings that aren't related to to given um, realities of animal production. Classic example is what we're going through in Proposition 12 in California. Um, I, I know producers that are heart sick about managing sows without being able to have them in individual pens. Because they understand the social nature of animals, when you put them in a group, um, there's a pecking order established, and it can be very difficult and hard on some of the the more timid animals. So, it is you know th- there are no easy solutions. Um, there is no excuse for bad animal welfare. The problem with is sometimes we have activists try to define welfare without having any realistic uh, understanding of animal husbandry animal production. Neil, since you brought it up, what happens if Proposition 12 isn't overthrown and it's enacted in California and the implications spread across pork-producing states in the country? The thing that makes California Prop 12 different is that it sets standards for the product being sold in the state that impacts producers producing that product in other states outside of California because California doesn't come close to producing enough of its own pork. And our position has always been that if the state decides to do that on their own production, that's the state's prerogative. 
in this case, in California, you have less than fewer than 8,000 sows. We have about 6 million sows in the U.S. And with that, California itself uh, over-indexes on pork consumption and consumes about 15% of the pork in the United States. And obviously, this has been in litigation, remains in litigation. In fact, we've appealed the case that we've been involved with with the American Farm Bureau to the Supreme Court. We'll see... Uh, see if that gets taken up or not, but the the point that goes with it is is that it makes it very difficult uh, because you have potentially, if this is allowed to stand, you have the potential for, for a patchwork, and it'll become so um, confusing as it relates to getting the product to the right place. The end result will be higher pork prices for the consumer. The root of the issue to me would be whether the rules by one state over the nation is a violation of the Commerce Clause, and if that is allowed to stand, then what signal does it give to other states to set additional standards, not just on swine production, but in so many other facets of agriculture? Well, that's one of the things that goes with this, and that's basically, you just outlined the argument being made by MPPC and the American Farm Bureau. This is not the first time this has happened. There's a, a case called the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union against California, and that was about fuel standards, because California did a similar thing with fuel standards, dictating what kind of fuels would be done. And, and you guys know that, you're aware that when you uh, look at automobiles, you'll see the advertisement is that cannot be sold in California, and that's because of what their standards are in California, even though they aren't, you know, the manufacturer isn't in California. So... We basically have the state of California dictating what a producer in Kentucky or Iowa or Ohio or North Carolina can do. We think that's too far of a reach. Neil, sustainability by any other name really isn't new for the hog industry. It appears to me, if I look at your policies over the past several years, you've been concerned about raising hogs and protecting the environment for some time. That's true, Jeff. That's, uh, to quote Jason Lust from... Purdue University, and we spoke to a group at World Park Council last year, said, so when did productivity get hijacked by sustainability? And I would argue that it's not just the pork industry, it's all of agriculture, and it goes to your point about what we've seen happen with fewer resources going in to produce the food we feed America. It's productivity. It's always been, how do you get better? How do you do more with less? That's basically the premise of sustainability. How do you reduce your resource draw in order to produce your products and feed people? So for us, it is not about aspirational goal because the reality is you take carbon, for instance. Our industry, pork producers, are very close to being carbon neutral already. And in fact, I can argue we've got producers that are actually carbon sinks, meaning they absorb carbon and they don't put any out. But it's been done because it was productivity, the drive to do better, do more with less. And that's where our, you know, our guys are hardwired to do that. We're using 74% less land than we did 50 years ago. I think we're using somewhere around 20% less water to produce a pound of pork. And our carbon use per pound of pork produced is down 7% from where it was 50 years ago. So it's... It, one of those deals, it's a 
you never get to the destination. You just, it's a journey, but you keep making progress on that journey. Neil, back during the Obama administration, we were introduced to an acronym, WOTUS, Waters of the U.S. The Obama administration wrote their set of rules. The Trump administration unwound those and wrote their own. And now the Biden administration is unwinding the Trump rule and attempting to write their own. This WOTUS issue isn't going away. And what concern do pork producers have of the new definition and at least here in the interim, the step back to the 2015 definition? Jeff, everything old is new again. We've been through this before three times. And we're all getting ready to go through the process again. Now, I have to admit, in all honesty, the head of EPA, Mr. Regan, uh, who um, we have faith in, he's an honorable gentleman, he's also science-based and driven. We have a lot of faith in him. We think he was a good choice for head of EPA. problem with it is, is as you take a look at what's going to try to be done, how you try to implement this WOTUS rule, and remember, and this has never been an issue of whether or not we were going to get a rule because of a Supreme Court case back in 15, actually a little before 15, it became apparent we were going to have to have a Waters of the United States rule. And that was fundamentally talking about what's, you know, at what point does our government have jurisdiction over open water. So then the discussions have come up. First, it was Justice Kennedy's theory on what would uh, constitute uh, how you would regulate these waters of the United States. And that was employed in the first Waters rule, which was, you remember the the debate on the time and the concerns that fundamentally you're talking about a water puddle could come under federal jurisdiction on, on use and what that would do to land use in this country and, and authorities over land use. And then the Trump administration went to the, the other direction, which was called the Scalia theory, which basically took back that it was navigable waters in the United States that in order to have jurisdiction, he had to have flowing water and had to have a bank to the stream. Now we're back to where we were in 2015 where everybody was searching for it again, and we're embarking on probably at least a two-year process. The concern with that is when you start getting into land use, um, private property rights, things in this sort, very difficult issue, and you're going to have all of agriculture watching this closely and engaged in it, and it is a concern to the pork industry. Now, we have been, we've learned this, we've been probably the most regulated agricultural production sector in the economy. We've gone through this before. One of the one of the things that because of some of the regulation has helped drive us to be more sustainable, and we've learned to live with it. There are some other sectors of agriculture that haven't had to go through that, that are going to have to learn how to deal with some of those things. But at the same time, you know, we want, we want a clear regulatory environment that's understandable, that isn't over the top, that doesn't create an undue burden. Because in the end, we got to feed people. And that's our industry feeding people, but that's also crop production feeding people and others. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. We'll see how this whole thing plays out. But we, to your point, we are going to get a new wilderness rule. Neil, technology is a big part of agriculture, and uh, science has offered a number of solutions to allow producers to be more productive and more sustainable at the same time. I think about your industry, and there are questions now about how do we label a plant-based meat substitute or a cell-cultured meat substitute. 
And then we have new means of gene editing and other technologies that are available. This technology debate and this definition of technology, what are your thoughts on how to embrace these? First of all, I'll tell you, um, I'm a tremendous supporter of science technology. If you take a look at where our industry is today, it's information-driven, and it's because of research that was done 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I've been, as an avocation, I guess, on the side, I've been very active in those efforts to try to make sure we support our agricultural research in this country because my fear is um, you know, we're going to have another 2 billion people on this planet in the next 30 years. If we don't continue to make progress on science and research, we are condemned to potentially not be able to meet the need for that growing population. And when that happens, you're talking terrible consequences from ranging from famine to potential war over resources. Now, you mentioned labeling, which is a bit different, and some of that's cultural, but we are for labeling that is accurate and that is descriptive so the consumer knows what they're buying. So there, so it isn't something foisted off on the consumer that they get that they didn't think they were getting. And that discussion has been going on. The most recent one is what is talked about as being cell-cultured protein. That's where you uh, have a, a laboratory that that grows cells of uh, just extracted from an animal and produces some sort of product. Very expensive yet at this juncture on scale, but our USDA is attempting, or they're actually right now, they've pulled in people's uh, asking for input. A lot of the pressure for this is coming from the investment communities that are trying to invest in these technologies and um, pushing to get labeling so that they're, they have some idea about how they would label product. We think it should be straightforward, it should list ingredients. And again, take a look at the pork industry. You have a package of pork chops. What's the ingredient? Pork. Some of these products have lengthy the ingredient lists, but we think the consumer should be aware of what they're buying, and there should not be attempts to to confuse people. And some of this is has you know some of the marketing of some of these products has been directed directly at that. So we'll see how this works out. This is going to be a work in progress, also. But generally speaking, we talk come to science and technology critical critical to our world and our industry neil at the bottom of my page is trade and perhaps it should be the top and then significance and importance to uh, the pork industry in the nation you've had tremendous success in selling pork overseas even at higher prices what are your thoughts about the u.s rejoining uh, the cptpp or other bilateral or multilateral trade agreements we are very supportive of CPTPP, which is the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. We think there have been some recent developments like Thailand, Taiwan, China, Netherlands, the UK have all all said they'd like to be part of it. One of the dynamics that goes on for us is before there's any trade agreement that's going to be taken to Congress, we're going to have to have a thing called Trade Promotion Authority. That's going to have to be reinstated. It expired. The CPTPP is something we would really like to get back into. Surprisingly enough, that was the United States that started those initial discussions. First, it was a group of four in the South Pacific. 
then it grew, and it ultimately grew to now, what, 12 countries? And, of course, we pulled out, even though we negotiated most of it. Interesting dynamics. Now, just last week, the administration, Ambassador Catherine Tai, announced that there's been creation of the Indo-Pacific Trade Partnership. We think that's interesting. Uh, that, of course, would bring India into some sort of relationship with the United States. But again, trade deals take quite a while to negotiate. Believe me, we've been the poster child of American trade to benefit off of trade deals. It just takes a long time. And that's why a lot of our emphasis recently has been going into specific issues where we can get market access into countries where we've been denied, or at least it's been very difficult. One example is the Philippines. We've seen a significant decrease in duties on U.S. pork, which has led to over 150% increase in our exports to the Philippines this year. And just recently, when Vice President Harris was in Vietnam, the top talking point was reducing tariffs into Vietnam for United States pork. Those will go into effect next year. So there can be progress made on trade and more opportunities in trade. When you get something like CTPPP, which is a big deal, lots of countries, it takes a long time to negotiate. We kind of missed that first window when we pulled out of it right after the President Trump was inaugurated. It's going to take us a while to get back to that point, but we're hopeful we can get there. It's just going to take a while. Well, Neil Dirks, you have a 40-year career in service to agriculture and especially over the uh, last 20 years in serving the National Pork Producers Council. Well-deserved uh, retirement ahead for you. We thank you for taking time and a busy schedule to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and Neil, today you got the last word. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I started work with the Iowa Pork Producers Association 40 years ago, two days ago. So I've had um, really some tremendous opportunities in my life, and I have loved and enjoyed the ability to work for producers, work in agriculture. I think anybody involved in agriculture knows that farmers and, and farm people are special people. And as we go forward into the future, I'm, I'm totally convinced we're all going to be successful. And we need to make sure that farmers are successful because they're the ones who feed us and pretty important to me and my family to be able to eat. So I've had a, a very interesting career. I've, uh, and in fact, I told my board of directors yesterday when we had my final board meeting, I thanked them for the opportunity. It's been truly a, a pleasure and a, a wonderful opportunity that I never would have anticipated I would have had that opportunity. And I want to thank all the producers and others in agriculture I've had the opportunity to work with over the last 40 years for being good people and for being willing to do the right things and to serve their fellow man by producing food, which is a noble, noble effort. So, Jeff, I want to say thanks to you, too, because sometimes people don't think about it, but our ag media is critically important to getting the word out and the ability to not only give perspective farmer to farmer, but also to tell this story to consumers and others. And thanks for what you do, Jeff. I appreciate it. Our thanks to Neil Dirks, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse... 
I'm Jeff Nally.